Shalom, friends. Probably now more than ever, that Hebrew greeting of peace takes on new significance. Uh, I just can't help but think of the Lord Jesus' words of peace when he said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I'm just so glad that you can be here for the second lesson of this series. The lesson tonight is a conversation of parables. And the series is the heart of conversation, lessons from Messiah Jesus. You probably have heard that uh, we toured Israel in June. And little did I know when we toured Israel that four months later, the nation would be at war. And now the sites that we toured, the uh, desert that we hiked and the uh, paths that we walked and uh, the temple that we visited in Jerusalem are all now vacant. And I would not have thought that four months ago. So I don't take it lightly that our tour of Israel or this series on Messiah Jesus, which actually I designed in April, is a random occurrence. I really believe, as it said in the book of Esther, this is for such a time as this. So I hope that you don't mind if I take just a few moments before I start the lesson as I reflect on what has happened since October 7th because this war has become very personal to me. We had a Jewish tour guide and we named him, called him Uncle Kenny, and he uh, became very dear to us. Uh, he lives in a kibbutz and a kibbutz is a Hebrew name for gathering. There are 270 kibbutzes in Israel, and typically they're known for farming and also for uh, peaceful coexistence. So Kenny and his family live in a kibbutz, and uh, Kenny's kibbutz was hit, but it was not attacked, meaning that they did not take any prisoners' ransom. And thankfully, the family is safe, but in an email to us, Kenny wrote this. He said, tell our friends to continue to pray for Israel and for peace. We appreciate your friendship and solidarity. Now, when I spoke in September, I mentioned that I felt safe in Israel. And I did. Uh, maybe that's because I felt safe in Jesus. But I have to remember that there are two kingdoms in conflict, two kingdoms that are moving side by side one another. And that is the system of evil headed up by Satan, in which the nations are constantly in conflict, and the kingdom of God. So the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 6 that even though we war against flesh and blood, there's an even greater war going on. And that's a spiritual war and so what we witnessed on October 7th was a work of Satan. Because Satan hates Israel. He hates its people and wants to persecute them. And he wants to decimate its land. But he won't. Why? Because the world doesn't belong to the devil. This is my father's world. Satan is the ruler of the world's system, but the earth 
belongs to our Father. The earth belongs to the Lord Jesus. It is my Savior's world. He made it, and he purchased it with his blood. So that gives me confidence, and that gives me hope, because the Lord Jesus is king right now. He's not reigning on earth yet, uh, but he will. And the Bible clearly shows us that the nation of Israel is indestructible. God has not cast away his chosen people. God is not done with Israel. And all of God's purposes are channeled from salvation through that nation from which redemption flows. The Jewish people are a blessing to us because they have given us the Bible, the Holy Scriptures. They have given us our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, for our Lord Jesus said, salvation is of the Jews. So what should we pray specifically for regarding Israel at this time? That God will fight for Israel and enable the nation to defeat Hamas and restore peace in the land. Pray for Israel's leadership. Pray for the Israel Defense Forces. Pray for the Jewish people. And pray for those who have been affected by this surprise attack. And also pray that this conflict will not only open the eyes of the Jewish people to their Messiah, but also people around the world for their need of Jesus Christ. Now you today might be facing your own problems. I'm sure you are. It's not uncommon. Many of you have health issues, financial issues, job-related issues, church-related issues. And I'm going to say this, pray. And you may say, well, that sounds cliche, Carol. Well, this is what I know. God has obligated himself to hear the cries of his people. So would you pray with me now, please? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to gather together as women to open up your word and to hear about the lovely Lord Jesus. I pray, Father, for Israel tonight. Uh, we know how much you love Israel and its people. And we're going to stand firm, Father, on the promises you have made to Israel. Thank you, Father, for the promises you've made to the local church. We're so grateful, Father, for the opportunity we have to preach the gospel and to work together uh, side by side as we glory in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I pray now, Father, tonight that you would direct my words and my thoughts and may the word of God touch and affect women tonight. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We've been asked the question, you know, were you at any of the places um, of the sites that were attacked? And, uh, of course, we were. Uh, we did not drive, uh, go into the Gaza Strip, but we were in Tel Aviv. Uh, we were also in central Israel. We were in Jerusalem, and we were at the northern border of Jerusalem. In fact, we were at right here at the ancient uh, site of Hippos. It's on the crest of an isolated mountain. It's called Mount Sesita. And it's above the Sea of Galilee. So you can stand on this mountain and you can look at the sea below. And we also had a panoramic view of the lake and the mountains of the Colon Heights to the east. And that's what you're seeing there. And as we stood on that mountain, right to the right, 200 yards away, we could see Syria. You can almost take a stone and throw it over there. 
And if you remember, uh, Syria is a stronghold of Hezbollah, and it's an enemy of Israel. When we were here at Hippos, we uh, saw not only the ancient ruins of this Roman area, but we also saw communication trenches, and we saw small bunkers, defense batteries, uh, two permanent structures, all left behind from the Israeli war, uh, the Six-Day War in 1967. Uh, this now has become a modern military heritage, and I've often thought, you know, what is going on there at this time? As a result of the 1967 war, if you recall, Israel did gain control of the Sinai Peninsula, uh, the Golan Heights, the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, and East Jerusalem. It's interesting because the Lord Jesus was very active in this region of uh, Hippos, where we were uh, during his time. And it's not improbable that the Lord Jesus walked along its streets. Uh, the street that you see there to the left is a basalt flagstone street. And if you notice, it's arranged obliquely uh, in order to prevent Roman wheel spokes from being stuck in between the stone joints of fissures. Uh, when I think about this, the Lord Jesus being in this area, this was an area of a lot of conflict at his time. Uh, the Roman uh, government was in control, and yet the Lord Jesus walked the streets. This is the area of the Decapolis, and you're going to hear more about that in my January message, but this brings me great comfort as I walked along the Basalt Street and thought the lovely Lord Jesus was here. And he was bringing peace to the region, and he was bringing, of course, the gospel as well. We're going to go into the Galilee today, and this region is in the Galilee, and today I'm going to share with you our photos. I'm going to share with you Jesus' conversations and parables at various locations. Uh, today we're also going to meet the disciples, and it's interesting to think about Jesus did not officially begin his ministry in Galilee until John the Baptist had been put in prison. The Jews had rejected the one who had pointed to Christ, the Messiah, as he would herald and say, prepare the way of the Lord. And now one Jew stood up on defense of John the Baptist to bring him justice. We're going to read about this in Mark uh, chapter 1, verses uh, 14 through 22. You can open your Bibles, and if you did not bring your Bible with you tonight, you can um, read here on the screen. So I have it there for you. But reading, I... It goes like this. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the gospel of the kingdom. And as he walked by the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the brother of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So here we see from scripture that indeed, Jesus, Messiah Jesus, was a man of Galilee. And most of his life was spent in this region. Probably 60, per, 60 to 70% of his ministry was in the region of Galilee. 
particularly around the Sea of Galilee. Uh, this was a place in the Roman district, and it was under Herod Antipas. It was a green, it is a green, lush area, and it's where the Lord Jesus preached and taught and healed for three and a half years. Nestled in the Sea of Galilee, uh, it's in the Jordan Valley, and it's 700 feet below sea level. It's 70 miles north of Jerusalem, and it's, the Sea of Galilee is about 13 miles long. It's about seven and a half miles wide, and in the middle of the sea, it's 150 feet deep. And the sea re resembles the shape of a harp. It's also called the Sea of Tiberias and, or the Sea of Gennesaret. And it's interesting, as we looked at the sea, it hasn't changed at all since Jesus' day. It's the same. It's the same scenery. It's the same smell. It's the same sound of the water. It's exactly the same. And I love that. Just think, the Lord Jesus created this lake. He put it right in the Galilee. He scooped it right in the middle of mountains on either side of it, and he did it when the world was created. Why? So that this could be the area of his ministry to humble people in villages around this little lake. So beautiful. The lake is so beautiful, and it's so tranquil. And that is where the Lord Jesus chose to work and to teach. We had a boat ride on the Sea of Galilee, and here is a replica of a first century ancient fishing boat. It was called the Faith Boat. And we had a Jewish captain who was the owner of the boat, and his name was Captain Daniel Carmel. He's a Jewish believer in Messiah Jesus. And he also owns two other boats. He owns a boat called the Hope Boat, and he owns a boat called the Love Boat, <laughs> not to be confused with the comedy on television with Gavin McLeod as a ship's captain. Uh, before we set sail on the Sea of Galilee, we sang the Israel National Anthem. And then we sang the American National Anthem. And I tell you, that was a very touching moment for us. On the northern edge of the lake is one of the best fishing areas in Israel. There are at least 25 different species of fish in the lake. And um, in Jesus' day, the livelihood of many around the lake depended on fish. <laughs> and ordinary people seldom ate meat. Uh, they probably ate them maybe just once a week, if that. Uh, fish was their staple diet. And usually the fish was salted because there was no means of transporting fresh fish in those days. So the fish were preserved and they were exported to either Jerusalem or sometimes even they were sent to Rome. So the salt fish industry was a big business in Galilee during Jesus' time. And you want to know what the most important fish in the Sea of Galilee was in Jesus' time? This will surprise you. Sardines. Sardines was the most important fish. And, and just think of that. Perhaps the boy with the two fishes and five loaves had sardines in his lunch basket, which makes it even more of a miracle that the Lord Jesus fed 5,000 with two sardines and five loaves of fish, or five loaves of bread, excuse me. Uh, 
Along the shores of the Sea of Galilee, in Jesus' time, there were 16 uh, harbors that had been discovered. And these harbors provided safe mooring facilities during the sudden storms that would blow up on the lake. And here we have the harbor at Magdala. Yes, this is the home of Mary Magdalene. And also this city was known as a center of fishing on the sea, one of the main ones. And these um, are pictures that we took of the fishing installations along the pier. These are holding tanks for the storage of live fish. Now Josephus, who was for a time governor of Galilee, and he's a great historian of the Jews, tells us that in Jesus' day, there were 330 fishing boats that sailed the waters of the Sea of Galilee. In 1986, a severe drought lowered the Sea of Galilee water level several feet below its normal height. And two brothers, uh, Moshe and Yuval, were searching the northwest shoreline for exposed artifacts. And there was an outline of a wooden boat. They were shocked by its method of construction and the pottery vessels that were found there and the carbon-14 tests. This boat could be conclusively dated to the first century. This ship could have been Peter's. Accommodating a crew of 15, this type of boat would have transported the Lord Jesus from one side of the sea to the other side of the sea. It's a very humble fishing boat, yet used in tremendous ways for ministry. It's 27 feet long. It's seven and a half feet wide. It's four feet deep. It's made of seven different species of wood like cypress and cedar, and it seems to have been continuously in repair <laughs> over many years by a major craftsman. And in the end, the boat was abandoned on the shoreline. I thought, this just has to be Peter's boat, because I could picture Peter abandoning his ship when the Lord Jesus came to him on the shore of the Sea of Galilee after Jesus had been resurrected and came back and had a conversation with Peter, and he said to Peter, feed my sheep, and Peter left his boat. After years of work to preserve it, the boat is now on display in a special exhibition hall in Kibbutz, Ginnisar. It's not far from the site where it was first discovered. There were two main fishing methods on the lake in Jesus' day. It was fishing with dragnets and fishing with cast nets, and it's still used actually to this day. In fact, as you look at this verse, which is a parable, Jesus explains it, and he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a net which is thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into vessels and threw away the bad. So this verse is an exact description of dragnet fishing on the lake. Corks held up the top of the net while the bottom was weighed down. So when Jesus told the parable of the fishnet, the disciples who were fishermen understood every nuance of the parable. They knew that the net drew an edible fish as well as inedible. And so all kinds of fish and sizes of fish were flopping their tails in the net as they were pulling the, the net to shore. And many kinds of fish were declared unclean 
according to Jewish dietary laws. You just read about that in Leviticus 11.10. Fish without fins and scales could not be eaten and had to be thrown back into the sea. Only fish that were marketable were kept. Now, no sooner had Jesus entered Galilee than he proceeded to build up his staff. And it began after John the baptizer fulfilled his purpose to identify the Messiah. And on that day, John identified him publicly, and he said to two of the disciples with these words, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And upon hearing that, John and Andrew turned to follow the Messiah. Peter had been there too. He'd gone to the Jordan. He heard John's message, and there he met the Messiah. And the Lord Jesus gave Simon the name Peter, which means rock. In the Old Testament, a change of name also meant a change in relationship with God. To me, it shows how Jesus looked at people as he looked at Peter. He not only saw what we are, but he saw what we can become. He, showed, he sees the possibilities in people and what he can do in them and through them. And I thought, that, you saw that in Peter immediately, Lord Jesus, and you also see that in me as your child. As believers, we have new names as well. There's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. Oh, yes, it's mine. And what is my new name as a believer in Jesus Christ? Beloved. He calls me his beloved because I am in the beloved one. It appears by looking at the biblical narratives that Jesus had several contacts with some of the disciples before his final call for them to leave everything and follow him. So no doubt the disciples had been in the crowd and they'd been listening to the Lord Jesus and they'd been listening to his conversations and maybe they had stayed behind to talk to him and have further conversations with him and ask him questions. So by walking along the Sea of Galilee, this was the best way that the Lord Jesus could reach the men. And he'd observed them throughout some time here and he'd studied them carefully. And when God looks for someone to use, he typically looks for the person who is already busy. In fact, Mrs. Herb used to tell me this, if you want something done, ask a busy person. Now, there are many links uh, between the, these fishermen's daily work and the new task that Jesus would bring them. Fishermen understood that teamwork could lose, without teamwork, they could lose their catch. And also, with a lack of patience, that could leave their nets empty. So a leader must begin somewhere. So the Lord Jesus gathered a band of kindred spirits to whom he could unburden his heart and on whose heart he could write his message. Now, these are men of not great scholarship, not great influence or wealth or social background. These men we're going to meet were poor. They were simple working people. But fishermen had perseverance. They had courage. They had an eye for the right moment. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. 
Now notice how the Lord Jesus said, follow me. That's an invitation from a rabbi to a disciple. And these disciples, and disciples means learners or followers of Jesus, had no idea that to become fishers of men was a long, slow process. There were many things they had to learn along the way of how God would use them and how they had to be nothing and Christ would be everything as they learned how to become fishers of men. It's almost like the sanctification process for us, isn't it? God is so patient. He's working through us and into do of his good will in our lives. And the same was true in the disciples. He was very patient with them as they learned how to become fishers of men. But it wasn't simply, follow me, the Lord Jesus was saying. Oh, is more than that. It was follow with me. He welcomes them to enjoy his companionship. Um, Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethesda. Bethesda means the house of the fishermen, and it's one mile from the Sea of Galilee, and as you can see from the picture that we took, it's a desolate, remote site. Uh, this excavation has just been a recent, so that's why it is in the condition it is. It's in ruins today, as you can see. But this is the town of what I refer to as the Bethesda boys, uh, Philip and Andrew and Peter, and later they would move to Capernaum so they could be close to Jesus. So the next day, uh, Jesus decided to go to the Galilee, and look who he finds. He finds Philip. And he says to Philip as well, follow me. Well, Philip, like Andrew, could not keep the good news to himself. Andrew had brought the Messiah to, to Peter, and just like that, Philip goes to his friend Nathaniel, and he says to Nathaniel, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Well, the moment Philip said the Messiah was from Nazareth, Nathanael had serious doubts. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? An interesting question. Although Nathanael and his other name is Bartholomew and Typically, Galileans had two names. Nathaniel was a fellow Galilean, but he held a very low view of anyone from Nazareth. Nathaniel was from Cana. He thought that was a more reputable town. <laughs> uh, Cana, if you remember, is where Jesus had turned water into wine at a wedding celebration. So the two towns of Cana and Nazareth were about three to four miles apart but they were probably rivals. And he probably knew some of those people from Nazareth. Uh, it's a town that had a mixed population of Jews and Gentiles, and it was given a low rating by the rest of the Galileans. Uh, today, the town of Nazareth um, is a bustling city of about 60,000 people. And it has 50 church steeples and domes and many high-rises. And I must tell you this, I was very disappointed when we went to Nazareth because it bears no resemblance of Jesus' boyhood town. It is the largest Arab city 
in Israel with two-thirds Muslims. And our Jewish tour guide, Uncle Kenny, was not allowed to go into Nazareth. Isn't that interesting? A Jew was not allowed in Jesus' hometown. Uh, Here is an authentic first century recreation of Jesus' hometown. And oh my goodness, look there. Is that Faye I see walking the streets of Nazareth there? Wow, there she is. She's talking to one of those shepherds, I think. That's what's going on there. (laughs) But here we have again the recreation, and I'm so glad they did that. In the middle of the cosmopolitan Nazareth, we were able to um, get an experience of what Nazareth would have been like in Jesus' day. And people were dressed up as shepherds. They were dressed up as uh, pottery people. uh, We had women making bread. We had uh, the fruits of the area and uh, the pomegranates. And so we did get a taste of what Nazareth was like. Uh, Volunteers come from all over the world to this Nazareth village to play these parts. They're volunteers. They take no money. They just want to be able to recreate what Nazareth looked like in Jesus' day. Although uh, we typically picture Jesus as a carpenter who worked with wood, uh, the building materials of Israel were primarily rocks and cut stones. So Jesus probably worked more as a stonemason than he did with wood. Uh, in fact, he may have helped construct buildings in the nearby city of Seraphorus, uh, which were made of limestone and imported marble structures in this city. Archaeologists concluded that at the time of Jesus, only a few dozen families lived in Nazareth who knew each other. So Nazareth could be considered a podunk village. <laughs> and it was made up of country bumpkins. But let's not be too hard on Nathaniel. Uh, We also associate size with importance. And we judge on appearance and background too often, don't we? So it's hard to imagine someone great coming from a place that is so small and so remote or so insignificant. So we can ask the question, can anything good come out of Palo? A swampy, rural area, six miles from my hometown of Aurora on the Iron Range of Minnesota. I don't know, did I say that right? I tried to get a Finnish accent in there. Yes. The gospel of Jesus Christ came forth from 13 believers and their pastor sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. In 1958, the gospel seed was planted in the Palo Markham area. And just like a mustard seed, it has grown to great proportions, not only on the Iron Range, but throughout the state, throughout the country, throughout the world, and it's still growing. Thousands from every country and state have come to know Jesus Christ either directly or indirectly because of the seed that was planted in a podunk village of Palo. And maybe you are one of them. I know I am. And Jesus was not offended by uh, Nathaniel's statement about Nazareth. And instead, the Lord Jesus paid him a compliment. And he said, surely this is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Now, Jesus was making a contrast between this Israelite and Jacob, the first person to be called Israel. 
So Nathanael was amazed. How do you know me? Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, said Jesus. What was Nathanael doing under the fig tree? He was memorizing and meditating on scripture. It was impossible for everyone to have a written copy of the Old Testament scriptures. So the Jewish people spent a lot of their time memorizing them, hiding the word of God in their heart. And then they would meditate upon what they had learned. To the Jews, a fig tree represented peace. And so their idea of peace was when one could be undisturbed under his own fig tree. And a fig tree was leafy and shady. The rabbis said that the best place to meditate upon scripture was under a fig tree. It shows me the importance of scripture memorization. And Nathaniel realized that Jesus knew the exact passage of scripture upon which Nathaniel had been meditating. Messiah knew his very thoughts. This comes out clearly when Jesus said to Nathaniel, Verily, verily, I say to you, you shall see the heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. This struck Nathaniel. Jesus knew what he was meditating on, the Genesis story of Jacob at Bethel when he had seen the golden ladder leading up to heaven. Jesus had known the exact passage of scripture that Nathanael had been contemplating. Therefore, Jesus had to be the messianic king. And he said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Nathanael knew from the prophets that Messiah would be the son of God. And he realized that Jesus proved his messiahship his divinity by knowing his thoughts. So Jesus had won another disciple that day who would follow him. The Gospels do not mention all of Jesus' location changes, only those that play a significant role in his ministry. But one of the most important shifts is his shift from his childhood home of Nazareth to a place that he would call his hometown. It was the town of Capernaum. And he moved to Capernaum, and it was a fishing village. It was on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And during Jesus' time, it had a population around 1,000. Now, Nazareth and Capernaum are two totally different places. The distance from Nazareth to Capernaum can be covered in probably a short day's walk. And in that walk, the Lord Jesus left his home in Nazareth, went to Capernaum, never took a return to Nazareth and lived there again. So why did Jesus choose this place, this city of Capernaum? Here's the reason. Because it was located on a strategically international highway, the Via Maris, the most heavily traveled road in ancient world. It's also called the Way of the Sea. This road links Africa and Asia and Europe. 
and travelers were forced to use this route as there were few other options from traveling from one end of the continent to another. So the most traveled routes passed by Capernaum. So Jesus was not hiding out in a remote area. He chose Capernaum as a center stage so his message could be sent and could be reached to as many people as possible. When we were in Capernaum, and these are pictures that we have um, share, are sharing with you, you'll notice there are also old ruins there and markers that show the existence of the Via Maris. And there was a Roman marker which marked the miles and distance in between cities on the route. And there was a pillar there that had a family name of Alpheus. And on the pillar it said this, Alpheus, son of Zebedee, son of John, place this column here. May it be ascribed to him as a blessing. Now where did Jesus like to teach and preach in Capernaum? Well, when he entered Again, into the synagogue, we see that he taught often there on the, on the Sabbath. And it was not until 1968 that the town of Capernaum was fully excavated. And among the ruins was found the synagogue where Jesus frequently taught. And Faye is going to share in her November message more about this synagogue because it has a fascinating story to it. Uh, many substantial archaeological excavations have verified the location of Peter's home. And in Capernaum, uh, it was, it's 84 feet from the synagogue. And it's a home where also the Lord Jesus lived. And when we were there, we could stand and we could peer into Peter's home. And I thought, oh, is this okay that we do this? <laughs> you know, I don't want to be a, a peeker here, but they said, no, take a look, because it is exactly preserved as it was in Peter's day. Uh, Peter and his family, his extended family, lived here, of course, with his brother Andrew as well, and they shared this living compound and it contained a central kitchen that we could see and living quarters. And then there were individual bedrooms there that connected to it. And then there was one particular room right off to the right. And it had been enlarged at some point. And they felt that this was a room where the Lord Jesus stayed when he was in Capernaum. And this was the home where Peter healed, excuse me, where the Lord Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law who was in bed stricken with a burning hot fever. And these burning hot fevers were typical in those days in Galilee. But with a gesture of taking the woman's hand, the Lord Jesus, with his unique authority and power, healed her. And she got up immediately, and she prepared the Shabbat meal for them, which tells me something about this mother-in-law. She was a woman who was very hospitable, and she just wanted to serve others. And I know we have many mother-in-laws in our midst who are the same way. Now, as Jesus was in Capernaum one day, he, um, he was passing by. And he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, uh, sitting at the tax collector's booth. And as Jesus was passing there, uh, there's Levi, right? There's Matthew. He's sitting at the toll gate on the Via Maris. 
And in those days, there were import and export taxes, and Capernaum must have been the place where they were collected because the ships were traveling around the Sea of Galilee from town to town. And Matthew worked for the Roman governor, Herod Antipas. Now, tax collectors are never popular. I don't care in what era we live in, but in the era of Jesus' day, they were hated. People never knew how much they had to pay, and tax collectors extracted from them as much money as they possibly could. So here was the Lord Jesus wanting the man that no one else wanted. And he offered friendship to him, to the man who all else people would scorn. And I think at that moment, Matthew must have had an ache in his heart. Before Jesus called him, Matthew would have heard Jesus talking in Capernaum. He would have known of him. He would have seen some of the miracles. He would have listened on the outskirts of the crowds to Jesus' message. And something that Jesus said must have stirred in his heart. And so Matthew forsook all and rose up and followed the Lord Jesus. And of all the disciples, Matthew gave up the most. He literally left all to follow the Lord. Peter, Andrew, James, John, they could go back to their boats. There was always fish to catch in the old trade. But Matthew had burned his bridges completely. And by one decision, at one moment, he put himself out of a job which he would never get back. Matthew staked everything on Christ, and he was not wrong. But one thing Matthew did not leave behind was his pen. The first book of the New Testament was written by Matthew, which embodies one of the most important books of the Bible. With his orderly mind and his systematic way of thinking, his familiarity with details, he begins the book with the genealogy of Jesus Christ to prove Christ's royal ancestry, for he is a descendant of King David. So Matthew sees in Jesus the fulfillment of the hopes and dreams of the Jewish nation and fulfillment of God's promises to his people. In Matthew, he is a Jew writing to a Jew. So he's presenting Jesus to the Jews as a messianic king whom they had long expected. And as he wrote, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. So out of many disciples, the Lord Jesus selected only 12. And as such, 12 is a symbol, an important symbol it's one of the important, most important numbers in the Bible because it derives from the emergence of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now later, toward the end of his ministry, the Lord Jesus is going to refer to these disciples as friends. But friendship doesn't just happen overnight. Making close friends takes time. In fact, research says that it takes more than 200 hours of time together to create a close friendship. Now, Peter and Andrew 
top this list. In fact, Peter's the first name on this list. Peter and Andrew are brothers, the sons of John, and Peter's name is at the top because he was a leader right from the beginning. He showed that. But we also know that Peter was rather impetuous at times. You know, sometimes he would open up his mouth and say things and we read it and we just cringe and think, oh, Peter, I cannot believe you said that. But I don't think we should be too judgmental of him. A great deal of scripture we would not have had Peter not opened his mouth. <laughs> uh, we don't give Andrew much attention, do we? Andrew was the brother who lived under the shadow of Peter. He was not part of the inner circle of Peter, James, and John. Oh, it would have been so easy for Andrew to resent this. My goodness, didn't I bring Peter to the Messiah? Might he not reasonably expect a foremost place in the disciples? But that never occurred to Andrew. He was quite content to play a humble part in the 12. All that mattered to him was that he was with Jesus and he could serve him as he could. It was Andrew's great joy to bring others to Christ. And then we have James and John, brothers, sometimes referred to as the sons of thunder. And then we have Philip, Nathaniel, Thomas, Matthew, James, and Judas, also called Thaddeus, brothers, sons of Alphaeus, and then we have Simon the Zealot. Now, zealots usually assassinated Jews who worked for Rome, and tax collectors were their targets. <laughs> and then there's the 12th disciple, Judas Iscariot, a man from the town of Kiriat, it's located in southern Judah. He was the only non-Galilean among the disciples. And Judas is always mentioned last and placed there because of his infamous deed of betrayal. There's always a shudder of the heart as we think of Judas and his betrayal of our precious Savior. You know, when he joined the 12, he had every gift which would have made him great. In fact, he was the treasure of the group. But bit by bit, his lack of faith in Messiah Jesus was his undoing. The tragedy of Judas is the greatest in history. Judas wanted Jesus to be what he wanted him to be. He was a fanatical nationalist, and he had seen in Jesus the one person who could make his dreams of national power and glory come true. And when Jesus took his own way, the way of the cross, Judas was so incensed, he betrayed him. Now, without a doubt, Jesus could have stopped Judas. And here's the whole human situation. God has given us free wills. His love always appeals to us, just as Jesus did with Judas throughout the ministry. But there's no compulsion on Jesus' part to believe in him. Yes, we can spurn God's love, the appeal of his love, disregard the warning of his voice when he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
And in the end, there's only one responsible for the decision we make regarding our eternal destination. For he who has the Son has life, and he who has not the Son of God does not have life. But God seeks to love us so much. His voice is more sweetly insistent than all the voices that may call us away from him. And Jesus loved Judas to the end. But Judas had made his decision. And so Jesus said to him, go do what you must do. Well, only the Lord Jesus could bring such a diverse group of people together and get them to work alongside each other. And I really believe that the Lord Jesus is the finest example with this group of disciples of diversity and inclusion. <laughs> he breaks down racial, cultural, and linguistic barriers and unites people regardless of their background, their color, and their status. And he unites them at the foot of the cross as he lifts all men up as they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved. These 12 men made great sacrifices. They had left their professions to become soul winners. It was a complete break from their former life. It was a permanent break. And now it would be a joint participation it would be a side-by-side -side walking along with one another. So in some, as I think about these 12, they were ordinary folk, just simple folk. They did not come from schools and universities. Uh, they weren't drawn from the aristocracy. They were neither learned nor wealthy. So as to say, they were ordinary people. And no one ever believed in ordinary people as Jesus did. He knew the importance of relationships, and he believed that they would be in a relationship with one another, and he said that we might be together, that we will be with him at all times. And we need each other too, dear ladies. We need each other for mutual encouragement and joy. Why? Because a friend loves at all times. Does Jesus love us at all times? Yes. He loves us on our good days, and he loves us on our not-so-good days. And the same should be true with friendship that we have within the church. We should love each other at all times. Will we let each other down at times? Yes. Will we disappoint one another at times? Yes. Will we hurt one another at times? Yes. But the Lord Jesus calls us to love each other all the time. And that includes forgiveness because we must forgive one another as well as we love one another as Jesus Christ has loved us. Uh, a University of Virginia study sought insight into the way that friendship might help people cope with some of the less pleasant aspects of life. So researchers stopped students on a hill on campus, and they asked them, would you be willing to be part of an experiment? The researchers had given heavy backpacks to the students, and some of whom happened to be alone, uh, while others were with friends. And the students thought that they would be asked to climb the hill, but instead they were told 
to guess how steep the slope was. So the students who were alone thought the hill was very steep. And those who had been walking with a friend thought it far less so and guessed it wouldn't be arduous to climb, even with the backpacks. So the study revealed something even more surprising. The longer the friendship, the gentler the slope of the hill seemed to be to both friends. So isn't that a lovely research that gives a lovely story of what the Lord Jesus was showing us as well? That friends and the length of the friendship is even important as well. We carry each other along, don't we, with the Lord Jesus. We love each other at all times because the earnest counsel of a friend is so sweet to us. Value your friends in Christ. Thank the Lord for your friends throughout the years. I think of my friends and I have friends. I mean, all of you are my friends. And I think about the friendships that we've had throughout the years. And we worked side by side for the cause of Jesus Christ. We have prayed together. We have loved one another. We've cried together. We've rejoiced together. We've been to weddings together. We've been to funerals together. We've been to countless potlucks together. And through it all, we love one another. Now, Mark 4 is going to be a turning point in Christ's earthly ministry. He came onto his own people, the Jews, and his own received him not. There was a large crowd gathered around him, so he got into a boat on the sea and he sat down. And the crowd was by the sea on the land, and he began teaching them many things by parables. Now, at the beginning of his ministry, he was teaching in the synagogues, and now he's teaching on the seashore. It was not that the synagogue door was shut to him, finally, but the door was closing. This was the second year of his ministry. And the Jewish leaders were now in open opposition to him, blatant unbelief. And the setting of the parables that I'm going to share with you is very important. Rabbis always taught in a sitting position. So when the Lord Jesus was teaching, he sat. And in this case, he sat in a floating pulpit, in a boat. So Jesus is teaching parables at the water's edge. Now, 34 times in the Gospels, it's mentioned that multitudes of people followed Jesus. And these were great crowds. Uh, They could have easily reached 15,000 people. But something was wrong with this crowd of Jewish people. All of whom had been raised on the Old Testament law. That law governed every aspect of their life. It governed them from the time they got up in the morning until the time they went to bed at night. And this Jewish nation had enjoyed hundreds of years of the ministry of Moses and Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and Jeremiah and the prophets and the uh, Psalms and the Proverbs. And they had all this seed that was thrown to them of the word of God. And so when the Lord Jesus, the Messiah Jesus came, they should have recognized him. They should have embraced him. But they had a serious problem. 
While seeing Jesus' miracles, they did not see. While hearing Jesus' words and what he taught, they did not hear. The crowd who had been taught the Old Testament scriptures, especially the religious leaders, thought they knew everything. And yet it was the fishermen and the humble people who saw the truth and received it by faith. But most of this crowd was blind. They could not see all of the things around them that God had put right in front of them to teach them the truth about the Messiah and his kingdom. So Mark in chapter 4 introduces us to parables, which is a very special kind of story to awaken their interest, to rouse their curiosity. So they'd go home and say, hmm, what was that story about? And the more they would think about it, the more God would speak to them. Oh, but there were the wise and prudent among them. They were wise, they were puffed up in their own knowledge. And, and if you have ever been a teacher, you know you cannot teach anyone who does not want to be taught. It's impossible to teach those who think they know it all. So a teachable spirit is key. The Pharisees did not want to be taught. They did not want the truth. They had the Mishnah, their own rules and regulations, and as a result, light resisted blinds. So Jesus now comes in and starts teaching parables to hide the truth from some people. Yes, the wise and the prudent, but he's going to reveal it to the babes. Parable comes from two Greek words, which together means to throw alongside. So a parable is a comparison, and that's why you see the similes like or as in parables. It compares an unknown truth with an unknown truth and throws them alongside each other. Now, Jesus did not invent the parable. The rabbis had used parables for centuries. Uh, they habitually used parables in their teaching, methods which the Jewish teachers and audiences were entirely familiar. But there is a difference, I must say, between the parables the rabbis told and the parables the Lord Jesus told. Because Jesus' parables always ended in grace and ended in forgiveness. Just think about the story parable the Lord Jesus told in Luke 15 of the prodigal son. Now, Dr. Arnold Fruchenbaum, uh, who is a Jewish believer in Messiah Jesus, Yeshua, uh, likes to share rabbinical humor at times, and we've, I've heard him uh, at gatherings, and so I thought, okay, if Dr. Arnold Fruchenbaum can share rabbinical humor. Maybe I can share a little bit as well. So here's just a little bit of rabbinical humor for you. A disciple came to a rabbi and said, why is it that whenever I ask you a question, you answer with a question? And the rabbi responded, why should I? <laughs> a story is told of a poor rabbi who was awakened by a noise in his house and said, who's there? And the voice replied, a burglar. And the rabbi asked, what are you looking for? And he said, money. Wait, said the rabbi. I'll get up and help you. 
Jesus spoke 43 parables. And of these 13 were of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And those are interchangeable terms, by the way. Uh, in Matthew, kingdom of heaven is uh, what he, Matthew uses. And in John's gospel, there are no parables. Most parables are marked by brevity. And in brevity, they sparkle. Uh, he used elements of his day. The Lord Jesus used people, uh, items that people were familiar with, like farming and agriculture and fishing as his examples. And so to reach his crowd, he did it this way. Um, he did so with kindness and humility and grace and love. So different than the other rabbis. And the Lord Jesus spoke to people, not at them. And Jesus explained truths, not by giving a lecture on theology, but by painting pictures that captured the attention of the people and forced them to think. And on that day, he spoke to them in many parables. So in your own time, devotional time, and we're reading on these parables, you can also look in Matthew 13, as you're also reading in Mark 4. But on that day, he spoke to them in parables. What day is that? On the same day that the national rejection of Messiah Jesus had occurred, a major turning point in the career of the Lord Jesus. The purpose of Jesus' parables was to explain the course of God's kingdom program in light of Israel's rejection of the Messiah and the Messianic kingdom. Now, this incident happened in Mark chapter 3 when our Lord performed a marvelous miracle. When, he, when a demonized man who was both blind and speechless was brought to Jesus and he healed him, making him both speak and see. This so amazed the crowd, they exclaimed, could this be the son of David? When the Pharisees, the teachers of the law from Jerusalem, heard it, they said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and he casts out demons by the prince of demons. To explain his special abilities, the Pharisees came up with a rather radical solution. They repeatedly charged that he was possessed by Beelzebub and that he was driving out demons through a power alliance with Satan, the prince of demons. And therefore, they said the official basis for rejecting the Messiahship of Jesus was that he was demon-possessed. And Jesus said to them, Have you failed logic 101? <laughs> It, how is it possible that Satan would cast out Satan and divide his kingdom? Well, when the religious leaders ascribed that Jesus had cast out demons in the power of Satan, they were sinning against the Holy Spirit. Remember when I mentioned to you that when the Lord Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove upon the Lord Jesus, and the Holy Spirit empowered him for the ministry. So when they sinned against the Holy Spirit, who had demonstrated God's power in that miracle, they had reached the end of the line, and there could be no more forgiveness for the nation. So now, according to Jesus, the individual could be forgiven and saved, but for the nation of Israel, unpardonable. Only the nation, national Israel, could commit this sin. So now God will take the gospel to the Gentiles and to the ends of the earth, and the kingdom will be taken 
temporarily from Israel, and then the gospel would be spread. Remember the Lord Jesus said, if I be lifted up, and that's talking about the crucifixion, I will draw all men to myself. And he's referring to the Jews and the Gentiles as well. So people today cannot commit the unpardonable sin the way the Jewish leaders did when Jesus was ministering on earth. The only sin today that God cannot forgive is the rejection of his son. And that's why you hear me repeatedly say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe in the one God promised, the one who died for you. He took your place and he paid for your sin with his precious blood, the blood God demanded. In him we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. And by believing in him, and that's all that it takes, Believe in the one God promised who died for your sins. You will receive everlasting life. So when Jesus was alone, the 12 disciples, along with some others, came and asked, why are you speaking to them in parables? And the Lord Jesus explained to them, it's to hide the truth from unbelievers, the religious leaders who had rejected him, the truths withheld were not concerning the way of salvation, but secrets of the kingdom. And because they had turned from the light that they were given, God gave them no more light, just as Isaiah had prophesied. So now the parables are open to the disciples and to those who believe, but shut to the unbelievers with their hardened hearts and hostile minds. So the question is asked, well, what is the kingdom of God like? And Jesus describes it in four parables in Mark 4. And again, I'm asking you to read that chapter on your own time. The Lord Jesus is not talking about the local church when we're talking about the kingdom of God. He's talking about the kingdom of God that has been prophesied by the Old Testament prophets. It's very dangerous to take a portion of scripture and isolate it from its context. So what is the kingdom of God like? Do you know what a sower is? Lord Jesus, of course we know what sowers are. He said the kingdom of God is like a sower who went out to sow. You know what a lamp is and the, how you light your houses? Of course we do. And here I have a replica of it that I brought back from Israel. The kingdom of God is like a lamp set on a lampstand, for there's nothing hidden which cannot be revealed. Do you know what seed is? Of course we know what seed is. Well, the kingdom of God is like a man which scattered seed on the ground, and the seed should sprout and grow, and the farmer does not know how. You know what mustard seeds are? Of course we know what mustard seeds are. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed when it's sown on the ground. It's smaller than all the seeds, but when it grows up, it becomes greater than all the herbs and shoots, so the birds may nest under its shade. So Jesus tells the parable of the sower as he begins Mark 4. And this is considered the parable of all the parables. And in this parable, the sower is the servant. But in actuality, it's the Lord Jesus. The kingdom of heaven came by the sowing of the word by the Messiah who came to earth. And he is the one who sows. The seed in the parable of the sower represents God's word because seed has life in it. It has tremendous potential. Seeds have life and power and potential. It's the living word of God. 
And the soil represents the human heart. It must be prepared to receive the seed before that seed can take root and produce a harvest. Isn't it interesting how God uses nature to preach to people? <laughs> and that's what the Lord Jesus is doing here. God is preaching sermons day in and day out, all day long, and too often people don't see it. The sun comes up in the morning and the sun goes down in light. The sun comes up in the morning and goes down in night. Does anybody ever think, will someday I be in darkness? For us as believers in Jesus Christ, the sun comes up in the morning, the sun goes down in night, up, and, and do we ever think, did I redeem the day, day today? In a thousands of ways, God is preaching to us. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. But how many people are seeing? How many people are hearing what God is showing them through creation? So in the parable of the sower as you will read it, you'll see that some seed fell along the path. Some seed that was sown fell on rocky places. Some fell among thorns and some on good soil. So the disciples are standing out around the crowd and they're listening to Jesus' parable and they're probably nodding their heads in agreement. Oh yes, uh-huh, mm-hmm, sure, we get this, we understand, yes, uh-huh. <laughs> but in private, after the crowd left, the disciples said to the Lord Jesus, what does that parable mean? <laughs> uh, if you've been in a class and you're, let's say you're in a math class and the instructor is lecturing and you're nodding your head, oh yes, you know, you're taking notes, oh, <laughs> understand this, understand this, but you don't. <laughs> and so you go to the instructor after class and you say, could you please explain problem 12 to me again? <laughs> I didn't quite get that. And the same was true with the disciples. They did not want to appear ignorant in front of the multitude. So when they were alone with the Lord Jesus, they asked him, could you explain, please, what that parable means? And so the Lord Jesus, he's so kind, just like a good teacher would be, would not make the person feel stupid or ignorant. He didn't make them feel ridiculous for asking the question and the meaning of his mission as it related to God's kingdom. So Jesus said, boys, I'll explain the parable to you. I'm sowing the seed of the word of God, and I want you to know most will not bear fruit. So I'm interpreting the parable in this way. Now those disciples do not have to go to their shelves and pick up the Bible knowledge commentary and open it up. <laughs> they had the Lord Jesus right with them. And he said, I will interpret the parable for you. He said, there is the hearer who fails to think things out. A sudden enthusiasm can quickly become a dying fire. I wonder if Judas was listening carefully to that one and he was thinking about that. And then the Lord Jesus said, and then there's the here who has so many interests that often the most important things get crowded out. And the seed falls among thorns of worry or wealth and chokes it out and the hearers had initial interest but no response. 
So the devil snatches away the word that was sown. This is the hearer of the shut mind. And then here's the most important part, boys. And at the end of a parable, it was always the most important part. He saves the best for last. There is the hearer who is like good ground in his or her reception of the word. The mind is open and willing to learn and prepared to hear the word of God. And then the Lord Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Because we know faith comes by what, ladies? Hearing and hearing by the word of God. What a lovely parable. And I can see why it was defined as the parable of all the parables. You know, one of the dangers we have, ladies, of aging is becoming cynical. We have the word of God. We have the precious word of God. And we've hidden in our hearts. But the tendency is, when we get older, is to not either read it, trust it, believe it and become cynical in our thinking. Maybe um, people have let us down. Maybe people have caused us problems. Maybe life hasn't turned out the way we had thought it would. Who knows? The danger is always there for us to get hard hearts as well. And that's why it's so important to spend time with the Lord in his word and in prayer and in fellowship with him so that our hearts don't become hardened to his still, small voice that he speaks to us. You know, throughout this whole series, we have been looking and I have been talking about artifacts. You know, artifacts that I have uh, brought back from Israel and photos that I bring back. But I just want to end with this thought. The Lord Jesus is a fact, dear friends. He's a tremendous fact. He's the one sure fact around which everything in heaven and earth revolves. He was a fact in the beginning, before the heavens and earth were made, and he's still the most powerful fact today. He's always present in the lives of those who believe in him. He's always helping, always guiding, always loving. And the fact is that the Lord Jesus died and arose and returned to heaven, and he sent the Holy Spirit for us to live with inside of us so that we, dear women, can have victory every day, every day, as we trust him. May we, as women, triumph in Christ, because as the Lord Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Next time we meet in November, Faye is the speaker, and she is speaking on a conversation of provision. And uh, some of these conversations will take place in the area of Tabitha, which is in the Galilee. And this is the area of the feeding of the 5,000, and Faye is going to tell us that story. She's also going to take us to the Mount of Beatitudes. This, as well, is in that same area where the Lord Jesus fed the 5,000. And then she's going to take us to the synagogue at Capernaum, and she's going to tell us the story of that. And she's also going to share that the Lord Jesus stood in the synagogue, and this is where he said his famous sermon, I am the bread of life.
Uh, she's also going to travel with us to Bethlehem, which is the house of bread. And she's going to take us to the shepherd's field and the shepherd's cave, where we will be reminded of the words, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gave his life for the sheep. So that's on November 16th, right here at 6 o'clock. So we look forward to having you come back. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Father, for your word. And thank you, Father, for these stories of the lovely Lord Jesus we have here in your word. And we can be reminded, Father, of how much he loves people, cares for them. And he wants them, Father, to be his child. So I pray, Father, that we would walk in newness of life, be refreshed every day from your word and from encouragement. May we encourage one another in the Lord as well. And thank you for even showing us today the importance of friendship. We rejoice, Father, in what you are doing uh, behind the scenes. We don't know what you're doing in our lives, Father, but we know you do all things well. And may we trust that every single day. Thank you for each woman here tonight, Father. Bless your word. It's in the precious Lord Jesus' name I pray, amen.